avoiding human conditions Not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Our co-host, Eleanor Goldfield, will return next week. This week on the program, I'm sharing a conversation that I recently had with Cold War historian Peter Kuznick of American University. Peter Kuznick is co-author with Oliver Stone of the best-selling historical work, The Untold History of the United States. I talked to Peter February 10th about the crisis in Ukraine regarding the U.S. NATO forces and Russia. As tensions mount, historian Peter Kuznick reminds us that war is not inevitable, and war with Russia or China would have catastrophic consequences around the globe. Today on the Project Censored Show, an hour with historian Peter Kuznick of American University. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. It is a delight to bring back one of my favorite historians, Peter Kuznick. Peter Kuznick is professor of history and director of the award-winning Nuclear Studies Institute at American University. And he has written extensively about science, politics, nuclear history, Cold War culture. He does umpteen appearances, speeches, does a lot of events with Daniel Ellsberg, many other characters, historical figures, talking about the importance of history, Cold War history, and how it relates to the present. He is also co-author with Oliver Stone of the amazing book, The Untold History of the United States, which a couple years ago went into another edition and added nearly 200 pages on the Obama administration trying to get us closer to the present. That book's nearly 1,000 pages updated. New York Times bestseller. Peter Kuznick, welcome back to the Project Censored Show. Hey, Mickey. It's great to be with you. Peter, it's always good to talk to you, and I know of few people more qualified to speak on some of the current events taking place involving Russia, China, Ukraine, particularly the United States and NATO, further NATO expansion, and the really obvious saber-rattling that is going on here right now between the U.S., between Russia, over Ukraine. Of course, the Biden administration has a history in the Ukraine going back quite a ways, not just through the Obama presidency. But And I think you're going to help our listeners understand the severity and significance of what's happening here. But it does appear that the U.S. and the West and NATO are really not just upset about some of the things happening with Ukraine and Russia, but it appears as though they are really looking for pretexts to really insert itself more into the region. But I'm going to hand this over to you right now. And Peter Kuznick, can you help give us some background and understand what's happening here? Well, the question is where we begin that background. If you turn on the mainstream media in the United States, this is a crisis that started in 2014 when Putin, the aggressor, wanting to restore the Soviet empire, invaded Ukraine, seized Crimea, seized the port at Sevastopol, and then sent troops in disguise, incognito, into the Donbass in eastern Ukraine and seized Luhansk and Donetsk. That's the U.S. media approach. The reality is that we have to trace this crisis back at least to 1990. We could even trace it further back than that. In some ways, we would want to trace it back to 1954, when Khrushchev, in a fit of stupidity, gave Crimea 
to Ukraine as a gift, showing his largesse and his close collegial ties to Ukraine. But let's start back in 1990. At that point, the Soviet Union collapsing, Gorbachev agrees to allow the unification of Germany. And he gets promises, not only by James Baker and George H.W. Bush, but by all the leaders in Britain and France and NATO and European leaders that NATO will not expand one inch to the east, one thumbs width to the east. And he's getting this assurance over and over again, this ironclad assurance. However, he trusted the West and he never got it in writing. And that was such a fundamental mistake, which he later realized and understood. You know, Gorbachev gave Oliver and me the first blurb we got on untold history, which I was very, very proud of because he's one of the great figures of the 20th century. One of our heroes, in a sense, in this book was a visionary, but he did not get this in writing and it's going to have devastating consequences. By October of that same year, the National Security Council memo reveals that U.S. policymakers were already discussing what they called, quote, sending a signal to the new democracies of Eastern Europe of NATO's readiness to contemplate their future membership. We didn't even wait a year before we betrayed that agreement, but they decided not to push too quickly. And the National Security Archives out of George Washington University just released a new tranche of documents that shows even though Yeltsin was carrying water for Clinton and was sucking up to Clinton and letting the US and others roll right over Russia in the 1990s, even he was fundamentally opposed to discussion of NATO expansion in the 1990s. And so the U.S. puts it off and doesn't begin until really 1997 for real serious accession talks. But by 1999, NATO expanded first to Hungary, Poland, and the Czech Republic. There's some discussion of the fact that Clinton, even knowing how strong the Russian opposition was, proceeded with this because he wanted to get the Polish vote in the 1996 elections. So he was making an issue of this. But everybody recognized that. Back in 1997, 50 top American officials put out a statement, a letter to Clinton that says, we the undersigned believe that the current US-led effort to expand NATO, the focus of the recent Helsinki and Paris summits, is a policy error of historic proportions. We believe that NATO expansion will decrease allied security, unsettle European stability, and they go on in that that regard. That was people like Paul Nitze, Paul Warnke, Robert McNamara, Susan Eisenhower, Raymond Gartoff, Mort Halperin, Gary Hart. We go through a lot of them, but it was also George Kennan, the mastermind of the America's containment policy, who says expanding NATO would be the most fatal error of American policy in the entire post-Cold War era. He says this is simply going to outrage and trigger the Russians. But then NATO expands in 1999. And then in 2004, NATO incorporates seven more countries, including the Baltic states, 
which were formerly part of the Soviet Union. So seven more countries, two more in 2009, Montenegro in 2017, and then North Macedonia in 2020. So NATO's expanded now 14 countries to the east, right up to Russia's doorstep. And I want to just interject here, the historian in me too, which is why it's always such a delight to talk to you. You have such encyclopedic knowledge of, of these issues. You write about this in The Untold History in Chapter 13, the Bush-Cheney debacle. The gates of hell are open in Iraq. So if anyone's listening out there, you can learn more about this history in Peter Kuznick and Oliver Stone's fantastic book, The Untold History of the United States. You do say here in 2004, Bulgaria, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. I mean, these are significant additions extending NATO, which wasn't supposed to extend a thumb further, as you put it. Right. And then 2008, Croatia, Albania. Let's put this into historical context. Because this is what goes down the memory hole. This is the untold history. It's well documented that NATO had promises to not expand, and it has done exactly the opposite of that in rather aggressive, extraordinary ways. But they were verbal promises, and they took advantage. They took advantage of Russia's weakness. They knew they could run roughshod over Russia. After the Soviet Union collapsed, Russia was in a period of extraordinary decline. And a lot of American economic advisors went in there and put the Russian economy through shock therapy, which Yeltsin was supporting. And, you know, in, in the, the original untold history, we put a lot of the blame on that to, onto Jeffrey Sachs. And, and, and Jeff wrote me after it came out. He said, Peter, you guys really raked me over the coals, but I'm not as guilty as you think. He said that they ignored all of his advice. And he and I have gotten to know each other over the years. And we actually want to collaborate around the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis later this year and other measures. And he's been really one of the guiding lights, one of the people who's got his head screwed on right when it comes to Ukraine now. And in the new edition of the book, where we go into even greater detail about what happened with uh, Ukraine in the 90s and 2000s, I quote Jeff Sachs at length when I saw him on Morning Joe on MSNBC. He was on there talking about the U.S. involvement in Syria. It was supposed to be about the outrages of what the Russians were doing. And he said, well, if you want to understand that, you have to understand the U.S. operation Timber Sycamore. And he said it was the U.S. that provoked the crisis in Syria at a time when there was no uprising of any significant sort with our putting all this aid and arms into Syria. And they try to talk him down. He wouldn't let them go. So I thought he was quite brave and quite brilliant about this. So I give him a lot of credit. Uh, but back in the 90s, what happened was the Russian economy collapsed through the shock therapy. Life expectancy dropped from 66 years for men down to 57 years. The economy shrunk to the size of the Netherlands. And it was just a total basket case during that time, which is why when Putin gets in there in 2000, he's able to restore some pride as well as the economy, and eventually is able to rebuild the military as well. You have to remember that after 9-11, the first foreign leader to contact George W. Bush and offer support was Vladimir Putin. And he's even allowing the U.S. to have transit rights and basing opportunities for the fighting in Afghanistan. 
He thought that we were going to be friends and allies. There was even talk about Russia joining NATO at certain points, crazy as that idea was. But then in 2002, the U.S. pulls out of the ABM Treaty. We abrogate the ABM Treaty. 2003, the U.S. invades Iraq over this strong opposition, not only of Britain and France, but of course, Russia. And Putin is getting the idea that the U.S. is not going to be a friend to Russia. And so at that point, he begins modernizing his nuclear forces after the U.S. pulls out of the ABM Treaty. And we can go into a lot more detail of this history because, let me back up a little bit, because in 2008, that's when George W. Bush announces that he strongly supports the admission of Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. Even though he was warned by many of his advisors that this is an absolute non-starter. Perhaps the most interesting is William Burns, currently director of the CIA. But back in 2008, Burns was the U.S. ambassador to Russia. He speaks Russian. He had just had a series of meetings with Lavrov and other Russian officials, and they made clear that this is a complete, absolute, non-negotiable red line for Russia, having Ukraine and Georgia join NATO. So Burns writes a memo back to the White House titled, Niet means Niet, don't cross Russia's red lines. And despite that, Bush goes to the NATO meeting in 2008 and announces we wanna have Ukraine and Georgia join NATO. It's interesting, and it's kind of ironic in a sense, that Burns wrote a memoir two years ago called The Back Channel, in which he completely negates the entire Biden position when it comes to Ukraine now. He cites his 1995 memos, as well as his 2008 memos, uh, and he says that Ukrainian entry into NATO is the brightest of all red lines for the Russian elite, not just for Putin. What he says back in the 90s, and again, is that this is not just Russian leaders, this is not just Putin, this is all Russians, whether it's Solzhenitsyn or whether it's Navalsky, all Russians, almost 100% of Russians, see incorporation of Ukraine into NATO as an outrage and it goes against everything that they believe in. And so, so Burns in a fascinating position because he articulated this as well as anybody. And he says that, talk about Ukraine becoming a member of NATO, it will create fertile soil for Russian meddling in Crimea and Eastern Ukraine. And he says, there'll be no doubt that Putin will fight back hard. People forget this. They forget that William Perry, who was Bill Clinton's defense secretary in the 1990s, that he almost resigned because of his opposition to NATO expansion. Fiona Hill, others, this was a universally acknowledged that this was beyond the pale, could not be considered. And the U.S. not only considered it, but then recently, when Zelensky has turned against his initial friendly policy toward Russia, remember Zelensky, when he got elected in 2019, he says he's going to create peace with Russia. He's going to solve the crisis over the Donbass. He's going to enforce the Minsk agreements that were signed between Angela Merkel 
uh, Macron, the Ukrainian leader Poroshenko, and Putin in 2014 and 2015. So this is going to be the basis. But then he, when he reaches out toward Russia in a friendly way, the hardliners in Kiev start come down on, on him, the right-wingers and also some of the liberals, and they say he's selling out, he's too weak, he's hurting Ukraine interests, and he backs off. Then he goes further and he arrests Medvedchuk, who was Putin's close ally in Ukraine. He shuts down Medvedchuk's three TV stations and comes out with this hard line toward Russia. And that's what aggravates it. Then he talks again about Ukraine joining NATO. And meanwhile, he's asking for more lethal aid, which Obama refused to send, which Trump campaigned that he would not send, and then changes his mind in 2017 and starts sending lethal aid. But now NATO is having trainers inside. More than a dozen NATO countries had military trainers inside Ukraine. They start sending more and more lethal arms. And even Turkey, a member of NATO, sends these drone missiles that were being used very effectively. And so from Russia's standpoint, for a lot of reasons, this is an absolutely untenable situation. And Russia did what people predicted Russia would do. They put 120,000, 130,000 troops on the border with Ukraine and in Belarus for these war games that are going on now. And it's a very, very tense situation. Well, I'd like to remind our listeners that you're tuned to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We're speaking with historian Peter Kuznick, author with Oliver Stone of The Untold History of the United States. We're talking about the current situation with Russia and the Ukraine and NATO. Peter just gave a Cliff's Notes version of a very detailed history and a very important history that really matters to understand the context of what's happening today. And after this brief musical break, we're going to continue hearing from historian Peter Kuznick. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff. Today on the program, we're speaking with historian Peter Kuznick of American University. He is co-author with Oliver Stone of The Untold History of the United States. And we are talking about the history of how we got to where we are now with the very tense situation with the U.S., NATO, Russia, and Ukraine. Before the break, you heard Peter Kuznick give a a detailed history going back to the 1950s up through the so-called ending of the Cold War and very important updates through the 1990s, 2000s, through the Bush presidency, part of the Obama-Biden presidency, and then Trump. So, Peter Kuznick, let's take off there. Let's go from 2014 to 2022 to now. It is the case that the Bidens had some history in the Ukraine. We know the history of the U.S. State Department and Victoria Nuland's infamous statement about the EU and what the U.S. wanted to do with NATO in Ukraine. So we know that there's there's been more going on here than meets the eye. We also know, as Gore Vidal suggested, that we live in the United States of amnesia. And people may not remember these things, but it's hard to remember things that maybe people didn't know in the first place which is why I encourage them to read books like yours, The Untold History of the United States. But Peter Kuznick, can you talk to us a little bit about the Biden's involvement in Ukraine? And does that history have anything to do with what's going on now? 
when Biden was vice president during the Obama administration, he was the administration's point person on Ukraine. He had regular discussions with the Ukrainian leaders. He was very instrumental in a lot of ways in terms of determining U.S. policy. Also, his son, Hunter Biden, was on the board of one of the Ukraine's energy companies, which is what Trump made such a big deal of. And so he's personally invested in Ukraine, but I don't think that's so much what drives him in this case. I look at Biden, I see the position he's in and the the pressure he's under, especially in the aftermath of the bungled withdrawal from Afghanistan. I give him a lot of credit for withdrawing finally after 20 years from Afghanistan. It was the right thing. Other presidents knew it was the right thing, but didn't have the backbone to do it. Bush, of course not. Obama, Trump, they all kept American troops there. Biden finally pulled them out, but he did so in a totally inept and chaotic way. And the media, instead of giving him credit, dumped on him. And all you would hear about was Biden's incompetence, which is one of the things that Biden sold himself as a candidate was, unlike Trump, he was going to be a competent president. And that got shaken. And so he's on the defensive. And that combined with the fact that he's under tremendous pressure from the hawks within the Republican Party, which means almost all the Republicans, and the hawks within his own party, the people like Menendez, who are equally hawkish. One of the things that you and I know as historians is that foreign policy in the United States has largely been bipartisan. There's a big difference when it comes to domestic policy, but the Democrats have really over the years been just about as hawkish as the Republicans. Even some members of the Progressive Caucus are hawks, don't understand the history of American empire, don't understand US foreign policy. So Biden was under pressure from both groups, but he made it worse because he brought in advisors who were, he has 16 advisors in top positions from the, or 17 maybe, from the Center for a New American Security. We've always had these hawks. Under Reagan, they came in from the Committee on the Present Danger. Under George W. Bush, they were members of the Project for a New American Century. They are the neocons. These are the imperialists. And now under Biden, they come from the Center for a New American Security. People like Jake Sullivan, Campbell, who's in charge of our Asia policy, was in the brains behind the Asia pivot. You can go down the list there. Newland, I mean, they're all in there. Newland is the number three person in the State Department now. And she was the one who, to some extent, was hands-on in the coup in 2014, the Maidan uprising, in which when the Europeans were, were going too slowly for her, were more compromising, she said, F the EU. Then she went out there and started handing out donuts to the protesters And then she, in a discussion with the U.S. ambassador, handpicked the next Ukrainian leader. Her husband, Robert Kagan, was one of the founders of the Project for New American Century, along with Bill Kristol. So this is the kinds of people who are putting pressure on Biden to act like a hawk. Biden initially sounded like he was going to be a little more reasonable and flexible. But if you listen to him now, 
He's doing his best Clint Eastwood make my day routine. And so he says, I don't respect Russia's red lines. Well, you better start respecting Russia's red lines. One of the things that I look at is the historical analogies. You and I are historians. We like to think in terms of analogies. And one of the analogies that people draw that's got some, provides some insights, but also is misleading in certain ways, is the Cuban Missile Crisis analogy. And the thing that's useful about that, when the Russians and the Soviets made the mistake of putting offensive weapons in Cuba, 90 miles off America's coast, what did the United States do? The United States almost went to World War III over that to say that this is not acceptable especially with our Monroe Doctrine, which we'll get into in a minute. And so we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, which almost ended up in nuclear war. And, and what we now know is would have led to nuclear winter and probably be nobody around to, to tell them how crazy they were. And Kennedy understood that. But the difference is that in 1962, the U.S. had between a 10 to 1 and a 20 to 1 advantage in the number of nuclear weapons the number of intercontinental ballistic missiles, and the number of bombers that could hit the other side. So clearly, Khrushchev was forced to back down because he knew his country would be totally destroyed in a nuclear exchange in 1962. What's happened, though, is in the aftermath of the U.S. abrogating the ABM Treaty in 2002, the Russians began modernizing their nuclear arsenal. To the point now in Europe, if there's a military confrontation, Russia will prevail, not only in Ukraine, but in Europe throughout. So the question is, what is the U.S. fallback? Do, do we escalate to nuclear confrontation? There's a real possibility that if war breaks out and it extends beyond Ukraine, that there's a real, I'm afraid, a likelihood that nuclear weapons get used. But in terms of other aspects of historical analogy, the way we ended that crisis, the Cuban Missile Crisis, was not with the kind of public diplomacy that seems to be going nowhere in the current crisis. It ended with a backdoor meeting on the night before the invasion was going to start between Robert Kennedy and Dobrynin, the Soviet ambassador to the United States. And they crafted a secret deal by which the U.S. would, within six months, pull our nuclear weapons out of Turkey. We would give a guarantee that we would not invade, but it was with a secret deal. This situation now is a little more complicated, especially in the aftermath of Afghanistan, because the United States and Biden were heavily criticized for not consulting the Europeans. So now everything we do is based on a consultation with the Europeans. So to have some kind of backroom deal like we were able to engineer to get out of the Cuban Missile Crisis is not as easy as it was back then. Plus the fact that in the aftermath of Gorbachev not getting this in writing, the Russians want ironclad commitments in writing that they can uh, hold on to and, and, and trust. Because the other thing that they say, much like the Iranians say in the nuclear negotiations, you might give us this guarantee, but what's going to say that in 2024, it's not going to be Trump or some Trump acolyte or somebody else who's going to simply tear this up the way Trump tore up all those agreements 
while he was president. So they don't trust the United States for obvious reasons as other countries don't trust the United States. But the other thing about the Cuban Missile Crisis, the other point I wanna make is that we came so close to nuclear war. And what Khrushchev and Kennedy both realized is that they had lost control. When the U-2 plane got shot down over Cuba, Khrushchev had not given orders to do that. In fact, he gave orders not to do that. And the, and the intelligence was very, very shoddy. So the Americans did not know what we were gonna confront if we invaded like the Joint Chiefs of Staff wanted us to. But after the crisis ended peacefully, Khrushchev wrote a remarkable letter to Kennedy in which he says, from this evil, some good must come. He said, our people have now felt the burning flames of thermonuclear war. What we must do is act. We must eliminate every conflict between us that could cause another crisis like that. And Kennedy slowly responded in kind. And that's what they were trying to do, to eliminate the crises, to end the, the nuclear arms race, to end the space race, to pull US troops out of Vietnam, to end the Cold War. Kennedy's brilliant commencement address at my university, American University, in June of 1963, called for an end to the Cold War. And, and that, that was something positive came of it, but they were statesmen and they both understood nuclear war. As Khrushchev said, uh, what difference would it make if we're Catholics or communists or, or capitalists or Russians or Chinese or Christians or Muslims or Jews? So what's the difference gonna make if the, after thermonuclear war, nobody be able to tell us apart? It's interesting that Khrushchev said when he was first briefed in the early 50s on nuclear weapons, he couldn't sleep for days. And Kennedy said, I'd rather my children be red than dead. Eisenhower said the opposite, that I'd rather be atomized than communized. But Kennedy didn't believe that way. And so they were able to come up with understandings. And, they, and had they both lived, it would have been a very, very different kind of world. You're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. My co-host, Eleanor Goldfield, will be back next week. We'll continue the conversation with Peter Kuznick after this brief musical break. This is the Project Censored Show. I'm Mickey Huff, speaking with historian Peter Kuznick. I wanted to bring this up. The media, the corporate media, has been really beating the drums for war, talking about possible false flags. Bloomberg went so far as to actually publish a false headline that said, Russia invades Ukraine. They had to issue a statement of publishing error because that was the headline. The headline was Russia invades Ukraine on February 4th. And Bloomberg said, quote, we prepare headlines for many scenarios, and the headline, quote, Russia 
Russia invades Ukraine, quote, was inadvertently published around 4 p.m. Eastern time today on our website. We deeply regret the error. The headline has been removed and we are investigating the cause. Well, I can tell you the cause. The cause is is that the establishment and the corporate press are pushing for this NATO conflict and a conflict with Russia by setting it up that Russia might invade Ukraine. What are your thoughts on that and the role of media here, Peter Kuznick? You know, the frustrating thing is in the United States, we do have elements of democracy that are worth fighting for. And one of those is that we have a free press. What does it mean to have a free press? It means that you can bring anybody on as long as they think within the narrowest framework that is acceptable to the U.S. media. I'm doing mainstream media all over the rest of the world. I almost never get asked in the United States. I do about, I'm doing three Pacifica radio shows this week and all kinds of things in other parts of the world. I did 12 interviews this week, but you know, not mainstream in the United States, if you are outside the bounds, if you are a critic of American empire, if you are a critic of American exceptionalism, if you apply the same standards to the United States that you do to Russia or China or Iraq, you don't get a voice in American media. The band of acceptable opinion is so narrow as to make the fact that we have a free press almost meaningless. And I find much more freedom of expression around the world than I do in the United States. And that's disappointing. It's very, very frustrating. For example, the context, some of the history. Why is Ukraine so important to American policymakers? They should know this. Back in the early 1990s, you had Paul Wolfowitz, Scooter Libby, Stephen Hadley, the original neocons who gave us the Iraq war and the Bush administration. Hadley says, we had a view that without Ukraine, a retrograde Russia would never become the threat posed by the old Soviet Union. Or you could go to Brzezinski, the cold warrior, who wrote in his his 1997 book, Grand Chessboard, he says, Ukraine is a geopolitical pivot because its very existence as an independent country helped to transform Russia. Without Ukraine, Russia ceases to be a Eurasian empire. And you just go to other sources, Financial Times, thoroughly conservative. What they wrote back in 2013, because when 2013, the EU makes an offer to Ukraine and Yanukovych accepts it. But the terms of it are that they had a deal with the EU alone and cut off Russia. And it's at that point that Putin makes a counteroffer. And Putin's counteroffer is much more generous. And he offers them a $15 billion bailout and it cuts gas prices by a third. And so Yanukovych makes the deal with Russia. And that's what triggers the uprising. But the Financial Times writes the agreement, this is the agreement with the EU, a sweeping deal more than six years in the making that would have liberalized trade and required Kiev to incorporate EU law into its domestic legal code was seen by many EU leaders as the critical next step in a decades long effort to spread their democratic values further into the former Soviet bloc with the goal of anchoring Ukraine firmly in the West. They had a strategy over a long period of time that undergirded this entire effort that makes sense out of it in a way that you're never going to understand 
if you turn on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News. Well, it's as if everything happens in a vacuum here, Peter Kuznick, right? It's just one headline, shocking headline after another, and it's unhistory. It's untold history. And this is what you provide so fantastically, not just in the untold history of the United States, but in every interview you give. And you're very generous with your time and sharing your expertise, not just on this show, but like you said, you did 12 interviews just this week, a handful with Pacifica. So, Peter Kuznick, I think it's really important that your voice and these kinds of contexts get out there. You said it earlier. You said the corporate media in the U.S., they are not interested in these types of contexts because they undermine the current agenda. So what exactly is then the current agenda, based on all of the history you just gave us, what exactly is the U.S. hoping to do here with Ukraine, and what's the, what are the chief motivations? Fifteen years ago, Vladimir Putin gave a speech in Munich in which he says the United States is hell-bent on remaining a unipolar power. He says that this idea of unipolarity is at the root of everything that's corrosive about the world today. He said that U.S. expansion of NATO has been a disaster, not only for Russia, but for the world. He said we're creating polar confrontational opposition in the United States. If we look what they did in the Balkans, we look what the United States did in Iraq. He says we're witnessing an almost uncontained hyper use of force, military force, in international relations, force that is plunging the world into an abyss of permanent conflicts. He says how dangerous this is becoming, and it's all an attempt to maintain U.S. unipolarity. Well, the U.S. unipolarity we knew by that point has had was over. Even Krauthammer, who declared it the unipolar moment and then the unipolar era in 2002, and said it would last indefinitely. Even he says by 2006, with the debacle in Iraq and Afghanistan, that unipolarity is over, that he had overestimated the possibility. And Putin is saying that here, but the U.S. is still clinging to this idea that we should and can dominate the world. Biden said that when he took office. He said, America is back. We're now the world leader again. And he's been trying to mobilize people around that vision. But the world has changed. We've got Russia as a military superpower. We've got China as an economic superpower. And unless we find a way to integrate them into a new peaceful world order, then we're going to have nothing but war and calamity leading ultimately toward nuclear war. Admiral Charles Richard, the head of the U.S. Strategic Command, has been warning that nuclear war with Russia and China are a very real possibility in the next few years. And we've had voices on all sides warning about this because it is absolute insanity. Well, you and Dan Ellsberg have been warning about that for ages. And Peter Kuznick, the corporate media here too has been referring to Russia and China as a new axis. I wonder where that word came from. And all this talk about the Munich analogy, which is also destructive. When Blinken denounces the idea, decries the idea that the Soviets want a sphere of influence. Peter Beinart had a really good piece in the New York Times, which says sphere of influence. What about the Monroe Doctrine, right? From 1823, we still affirm the Monroe Doctrine, that nobody, no Europeans or any others should have any toehold in, the, in our hemisphere in Latin America or Central America. And they quotes Pompeo and Bolton 
and others and Bannon reaffirming this just two years ago or what, a little more than a year ago that the Monroe Doctrine still worked. But this appeasement idea saying that we have to learn the lesson from Hitler's taking of Poland and Czechoslovakia in the late 1930s. We didn't stand up to this bully and look where, look where that has gotten us. That's what they said about Hussein. That's what they said about Hussein again in 2003. Over and over again. And they also talk about these people as being Hitlers. Hillary Clinton, back in 2014, says the same thing. She says what Russia's doing in Ukraine is just like what Hitler did with Czechoslovakia and Poland. People make these false analogies, and they're very, very dangerous. You've got Mike McCall, the ranking Republican on the Foreign Affairs Committee, says... So we are not projecting strength, as Reagan talked about, but projecting weakness, which historically, go back to Hitler and Chamberlain, always invites aggression. I think you're going to see a lot more of it. People draw out this Munich analogy, even though it is not applicable. Putin is not Hitler. He might not be a great Democrat by our standards, but he is not out to reestablish the Russian empire. As he said, Anybody who doesn't miss the Soviet Union has no heart, but anybody who wants to recreate the Soviet Union has no brain. And he's right. But that doesn't mean that we should not respect Russia's legitimate national security interests. And that's what ultimately is going to be the path out of this crisis. Our off-ramp is going to be some deal that recognizes Russia's security interests as well as the European security interests, as well as Ukraine's security interests. Ukraine should be neutral. It should work with both sides. It should not be in any block. And people there, I mean, they've got a lot of things to deal with. The corruption is terrible. The economy is weak. And there's resources there. Great resources, potentially. We're interested in resources. We're interested in walling off Russia. By we, I don't mean you and I. <laughs> it's pretty riveting stuff that's happening right before us. And, you know, again, I think it's really important that you remind people, Peter Kuznick, these are countries that have nuclear capabilities, Russia, China. Does it appear to you from your historical lens that the U.S. really is in the waning days of empire and that decline is oft long and it's never pleasant? I think the U.S. is in declining days of unipolarity, but it's not in the declining days of empire. You could say declining, yes, but the U.S. still has the power, the military power to bring the entire world down with us. As we understand nuclear winter, there are two people on the planet who currently have veto power over the future existence of life on our planet. One is Joseph Biden. The other is Vladimir Putin. And, and that's a terrifying thought that with almost 13,000 nuclear weapons left in the world, even a tiny fraction of them could cause partial nuclear winter. If a substantial number of them were ever detonated, it would send so much smoke and soot and particles up into the stratosphere, would circle the planet within two weeks, block the sun's rays from hitting the earth, destroy much of the agriculture on earth, lead to mass starvation, and if not all life dying, all large life dying on the planet. We know that. We know that what effect even 100 nuclear weapons, small nuclear weapons would have, could lead up to 2 billion deaths. But we've got 13,000. And so it, it, we're in a very serious situation. We've got to find ways to resolve these crises without threatening war and without going to war. 
You're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We'll continue the conversation with Peter Kuznick after this brief musical break. The new UN nuclear ban treaty not only bans nuclear weapons, but it bans the threat of use of nuclear weapons. And every time a US leader or any other leader says all options are on the table, that means nuclear weapons. Those are nuclear threats under the UN nuclear ban treaty. So we've got the weapons, we've got these incredible military capabilities, but we still have the mentality of people who learned to walk upright an hour and a half ago. And that's what Einstein understood was the great dilemma that was facing us. Our ethical standards, our understanding of the world, our philosophy is primitive, but our capabilities, our lethal capabilities are enormous. And that's the discrepancy that haunts us, that threatens us. So Peter Kuznick, 60 years after, 60 years after the missile crisis, Cuban Missile Crisis, you mentioned earlier, the doomsday clock, the nuclear clock was was two minutes to midnight. This is the clock that shows how significant the threats are for these things. What are your thoughts on that and where do you place this now? Well, atomic scientists recently announced they were keeping the doomsday clock at 100 seconds before midnight. The clock was started back in 1947 and the closest it ever came was two minutes to midnight in 53, after the US and the Soviets tested their hydrogen bombs, even though the Soviet bomb was a prototype hydrogen bomb. And then it doesn't get back to that till 2018 under Trump, when it looked in 2017, like the US and North Korea were gonna go to war. And the head of the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas said he thought there was a 50-50 chance that we were gonna go to war at that point. And it looked very, very dangerous. So they moved the hands of the clock then to two minutes before midnight. And then I think it was 2020 when they moved it to 100 seconds before midnight. I wanted them last month to move it closer. Because I think the situation now in terms of U.S. relations with Russia and China is the most dangerous it's been at least since the Cuban Missile Crisis, if not ever. And we haven't even talked about the Taiwan issue. That was what we were all obsessed about until this Ukraine crisis developed. But with Taiwan, which China considers part of China, has threatened to take it back militarily, the Pentagon has run 18 war games over US-China war over Taiwan, and China has won all 18 war games. So what happens there? Does the US say that, okay, now it's part of China? Or does the U.S. escalate? We know that Russia has got a doctrine that allows for fairly early use of nuclear weapons if Russia's security is threatened. And we know also that Biden is about to come up with a new nuclear posture review. We had hoped that he was going to disavow first use, that he was going to have a no first use doctrine. 
Uh, we also hoped he was going to get rid of the ICBMs, which are the most vulnerable and, and the ones that create the greatest instability, take other weapons off hair trigger alert. But now he's under so much pressure to show how tough he is that we've lost the hope that we're going to make any progress in this nuclear posture review. We don't even know if he's going to dial back what Trump did, because Trump's 2018 nuclear posture review now embraces new nuclear weapons, smaller nuclear weapons that are going to be more usable and earlier use, elevating the status of nuclear weapons. Again, we're run by madmen, by people who seem to have this fundamental disconnect between the needs of the human species on a global scale and their own limited parochial power motivations. We are in a world now where we're totally lacking any kind of global leadership. We're in a world in which the countries are run by mental and moral pygmies, in my opinion. What I would like to see is a summit. I'd like to see a summit between Biden, Putin, and Xi. We could also include Schultz, the new chancellor of Germany. We could include Modi if we want. I mean, we could include a few more people. We need a world summit where leaders will sit down and really figure out a way that we move together on a planetary scale, dealing with the things that really confront us, getting rid of the nuclear weapons, uh, dealing with the climate crisis, which does pose a long-term existential threat, dealing with world health issues, the pandemic, dealing with disparities in terms of wealth and poverty. The richest eight people in the world have more wealth than the poorest four billion people. That's insane. We have so many things we have to deal with right now. And for us to be fighting over the Ukrainian border at a time when nobody thinks Ukraine is going to be invited to join NATO, when people should recognize that Russia's security interests are indeed threatened, that if we were in Russia's position, we would be responding the same way that they are. You look when there's even an uprising with the Sandinistas taking power in Nicaragua. What does the United States do? You say, that's not acceptable in Central America. We fund the Contras, these thugs, these murderers, these terrorists to overthrow the government in Nicaragua. Similar things in Central America and Cuba. Uh, so I mean, we've got to begin to apply universal standards, which does not mean when Blinken and Sullivan talk about the rules-based international order, that's the order that allows us to invade Iraq because we want to, to overthrow uh, Gaddafi in Libya, to bomb Syria and other countries, drone attacks all over the world. That's not the order that we need. We, the United Nations Charter would be a much better, more universal basis for thinking about how to deal with these kinds of problems. Peter Kuznick, there is a lot for us to be focusing on and concerned about. And of course, as I often say, and I know you agree, history matters. And if we don't learn it, it's not that we repeat it. It's as if we're sleepwalking into our own dismal fates in many ways. We're walking into this with our eyes wide open. I mean, there's no excuse for us not to know what's going on and not to be able to preempt it, to prevent it, to avoid it to find other ways to solve problems in the world. There are legitimate problems. You know, there are problems in the United States with race, with policing, 
with climate, with the economy, with the gap between rich and poor. The richest, three richest people in the United States have more wealth than the bottom half of the population. We've got serious problems with housing, with education, with childcare, with paternal and maternal leave. Russia's got serious problems. China's got terribly serious problems, you know, and we should be using our resources to address those concerns and those problems not to be this vast buildup of military expenditures, you know, which is driving so much of the policy is again obscene. The weapons manufacturers after World War I in the 20s and 30s were known as merchants of death. And that's what we should think of them again as, now we've got a welfare state for defense contractors. And every time a drone is shot off, every time we're deploying more troops, NATO troops to Europe, that is putting money in the pockets of these bloodthirsty merchants of death. And, and that should not be tolerated either. But their influence in Washington is enormous. Their influence, their lobbying, the money they spend and the reach that they have, it might be obscene, but it's very, very real. Peter Kuznick, we've been warned by Smedley Butler, war is a racket. We were even warned in Eisenhower's farewell address. You paint these pictures, and it's it's obvious when you really look at it, but it's amazing how ahistorical and politically illiterate so many folks are. In the United States, everybody right now is losing their minds over Spotify, Neil Young, and Joe Rogan. Meanwhile, I've been speaking to you almost now for an hour. We planned on doing a half an hour. Here we are going on and on, and, and the interesting thing is, is that I'm, I want our listeners to know Peter Kuznick really just scratched the surface of how we got here. And if you, if you want to learn more about this, I strongly recommend Oliver Stone and Peter Kuznick's work, The Untold History of the United States. It's also a documentary series for people that don't want to tackle the thousand page book, but the notes are amazingly important. The details really matter. And Peter Kuznick, I can't thank you enough for really laying out such complicated topics and such a long timeline in the time we've had here today. Um, I just, just what should we be looking at on the horizon in the coming weeks? All this, by the way, happening on the backdrop of the Olympics in China, where there's never any shortage of pot shots being taken at China during the Olympics. What are some things that you think we should look for with Biden, NATO, Ukraine, Putin, and Russia? I don't know, Mickey. Uh, there are good proposals out there. We should go back to the Minsk II agreement. I mean, that would be a way to resolve this. And what I'd like to see is Ukraine say that they want to remain neutral. When the crisis started back in 2014, or even later, we're talking again about Ukraine joining NATO, even earlier, back to 2008, fewer than a third of Ukrainian citizens wanted to join NATO. Now there's more people wanting to join NATO. What Putin's hard line and some ways threatening behavior is backfiring when it comes to Ukraine. I think on all sides, there are very irrational behaviors going on. And we need to find an off-ramp because there is a real possibility of war. And it doesn't have to happen by design. It can happen by miscalculation, misinterpretation. We've got a lot of right-wing elements in Ukraine who are lining up on the border and want to take the Donbass back militarily. You've got the Azov Brigade, the right sector. I mean, you've got this extreme right-wing element, somewhat fascistic element in Ukraine. You've got other people in Ukraine who want liberal democracy. I can understand that. And then you've got a lot of this right-wing element. And there are so many ways to trigger what nobody wants, which is a war. 
And then once the war starts, as Kennedy and Khrushchev learned, it's a lot easier to start a war than it is to end the war. And it's a lot easier for these wars to spiral out of control and for them to go from a limited skirmish to a much, much broader skirmish. That would be the disaster scenario. There are too many ways to play this out that turn out to be an absolute unmitigated nightmare for the Ukrainians, for the Russians, for the Germans, and the other Europeans. People better take this seriously because we could be walking blindly down a path of something very, very nightmarish. Peter Kuznick, co-author with Oliver Stone of The Untold History of the United States, also professor of history and director of the award-winning Nuclear Studies Institute at American University. Peter Kuznick, thank you once again for taking time out of your very busy schedule to talk about such a significant and important thing. Thank you for having me, Mickey. And that wraps up my conversation with award-winning historian from American University, Peter Kuznick, co-author with Oliver Stone of The Untold History of the United States. My co-host, Eleanor Goldfield, will be back next week to share a couple amazing segments with you, so please stay tuned. Supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians, because they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. You've been listening to The Project Censored Show, established in 2010 by myself, along with Peter Phillips. I'm the executive producer, Mickey Huff, of this program. Also the host, Anthony Fest, our senior producer. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.